Have fun, man. Hey, thank you guys. How y'all doing? Pretty good. All right, a few of you are good. A few of you are awake. The rest of you will get there. That's all right. Man, I'm so glad to be with you guys today. It's an honor uh, to be here. I love, I love your church. I love your pastor. I don't know if you know this. You're blessed to have this pastor. In fact, when I knew I was coming to speak with you today, I was sharing with some people, and I was, I was surprised and stunned. Every person I said, yeah, I'm going to, to New Covenant, Pastor Josh. Like, oh, Pastor Josh, yeah, I love him, man. He's awesome. There's a lot of people that love you around, around New York Network. So uh, you guys have a great pastor, a great staff, and... Um, and I'm thankful to be with you this morning and honored. I know you're in the midst of a, a new series called Ready, and, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful for the invitation. Um, hey, before we jump into Scripture, uh, I was thinking about this. How many of you know that your heart often will dictate the direction of your life and the choices you choose, right? Now, I realized this recently. I had a, a low moment in my life that I figured I would share with you. This seems like an authentic, real church. So I can share with you a low moment. Um, I, I need to admit to you guys, one of the things that I love is snacking. Anybody else? Snackers in the group? Okay. And in particular, there's something about late night snacking when no one else is around to judge you. Am I right? Okay. Like everybody else in bed, you head downstairs, you open that pantry up, and it's like a worship moment. Right? You start hearing some angels like, oh. A light comes down. Maybe you turn on the light. Maybe it's God. We don't know. But it feels like a worship moment. And one of the things I love with snacking, late night snack in particular, is having cereal. Any, any other cereal? Maybe it's the taboo element, right? You're having a breakfast thing for, for, I don't know what it is, but I love cereal. And so there's something about going in there. You open up. Maybe you, you go for the Captain Crunch, which is, will leave that film on your mouth for like two days after, right? For me... My favorite, though, is Cocoa Pebbles, okay? I don't have it often, but when I do, it's, it just feels right. Um, or occasionally, if I'm trying to watch my figure, I do the Fruity Pebbles, because obviously fruit, so it's fine. But recently, I had a very low moment in my life. I went downstairs. I was like, all right, I'm going to get a late-night bowl of cereal, and there was Frosted Flakes, which is, that's a pretty good substitute. It's not the best, but we'll take it. And, uh, and I make the cardinal cereal mistake of pouring the bowl of cereal before that I, I checked and confirmed that there was milk in the fridge. Yes, you know, you've been there, right? It's one of those moments you do it, you're like, why, God? Why am I suffering like this? Like, this, this is not right. And so I open the fridge up, and there's no milk. And, and, but just then I look back, and I see in the back a thing of chocolate milk, which is normally reserved for my children, or when I sneak it some, occasionally. But normally it's for the kids. And I had this moment. I was like, do I dare? Do I dare put chocolate milk on Frosted Flakes? And I kind of had this moment where I'm, th- I'm going back. I'm like, no, nah, you can't do that. Like, you're a grown man. You're, you're, you're 35 years old. You've got two kids. You can't be doing this. Right? What are the people at New Covenant going to think about you when you tell them this story? And then this other side of me is like, just do it. It'll probably, it'll probably taste good, like, right, chocolate milk. And, and so I went back and forth. I went back and forth, and, and I have to admit to you, I finally just said, man, I'm going for this. I'm doing this. Desperate times, desperate measures. And so I poured the chocolate milk on there, and I went up, I went up to my room, and I felt a little bit guilty. I felt a little bit like this is wrong. 
but I tasted it, and it was kind of good. It was kind of good if anyone else has tried it. So it's, you know, I don't know if it was the lowest moment in my life or the most genius moment in my life. Uh, the jury's still out. You guys can let me know uh, after you think about that story a little bit. But it's a funny story, but it did remind me and made me think about the idea that our heart, oftentimes, our heart will lead us in the direction of our life and the choices that we make. And I think it's important for us to think about that concept. Because this morning I want to share with you a story in the Bible. But it's not just in this story. It's actually all throughout the Bible where we see warnings from God that we have the potential as human beings to think our life is moving in the direction and the mission that God has for us and has planned for us when in actuality our heart is leading us somewhere else. It's possible this morning that you and I are sitting in here thinking that we're doing the right things, we're moving the right way, that we're in line with the mission of God, when in reality, our heart has led us down a different path. And I don't know about you, but this morning, if there is a God, and I think there is, if there's a creator of the universe who made all of this, who made you and I, who knows us more intimately than anybody else, and has designed us for a purpose and a plan, we should want to know, God, am I walking in your mission? Is my heart where it needs to be to fulfill your mission? How many would say that's an important question? This morning, I want to I answer that question for us as we look in the book of Esther. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Esther. We're going to start at chapter 3, verse 5. This is a long story, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell most of it, but I want to read this, this portion of Scripture to you, then we're going to pray. Esther chapter 3, verse 5, it said, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your spirit that, that lives in us and has been with us. We thank you that this morning you want to speak to us. And I pray that our hearts would be open to your work, Holy Spirit. That you would show us this morning the direction of our heart. And you would challenge us to say, is my life aligned with the mission of God? God, you would speak to us today that we would leave here more in love with Jesus and more in love with his mission than ever before. Create in us a heart that is ready for your mission. That's our prayer. Everybody said, amen. Amen. So, hey, this morning I want to share with you a little bit of the story of Esther. And, uh, and, and in fact, we're going to look at two characters in this story. We're going to look at the heart of Haman and what it shows us, and then we're going to look at the heart of Esther. All right, heart of Haman, heart of Esther. So if you've never read the story of Esther, uh, what we have happening right now is the Jews have been displaced. They're refugees in this kingdom led by a king named Xerxes. Okay, and so Xerxes, uh, the story starts off, and he's uh, really powerful, really wealthy. He's got a lot of stuff, and he decides, you know what, like any powerful, wealthy person, I'm going to have a party and show off how awesome I am. And so he does that, and he invites all his people, and they're all hanging out, and they're partying, and they're doing it. And during this, during this party, he decides, I'm going to show my wife off. And, and so he, he invites the, his wife in, and she decides she does not want to be a trophy wife and refuses to come in. And so at that time, that was a big no-no. And so King Xerxes decides, I'm going to get myself a new wife, okay? And so he, he sets out this plan throughout the whole kingdom to find the most beautiful young virgin in the whole land, and he's going to make that woman his queen. 
And so uh, this, this starts a multi-year process. And, what, and, and, and meantime, while he's doing this, we're introduced to two other characters. One is named Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew who has adopted his niece, Esther. Esther's parents uh, were both killed. She's an orphan. And her uncle, Mordecai, adopts her as his own. And, and the Bible tells us that Esther was incredibly beautiful. So during this process of the king kind of gathering all the, all the most beautiful women to see who's going to be his next queen, Esther is chosen as one of the candidates. And the way it would work is you would go, you'd spend a night with the king, and if he really liked you, maybe you would be chosen. And so sure enough, the story goes on, and we find out that Esther is the one chosen to be the next queen. During this time, we're introduced to another character whose name is Haman. And Haman uh, works for the king, and he starts to rise kind of in prominence, and he becomes basically the number two guy under the king. And he's so prominent that um, he's honored. Every time he walks into the, the courtyard and enters the kingdom, everybody bows down. They pay him respect, and, and they kind of worship him in a way, right? And, and so the story goes on, and, and as Haman is coming in one day, and he's, he, he's getting honored by everybody else, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, refuses to bow down and honor him. And in that moment, we, we learn something about the heart of Haman. I'm going to read it one more time. It said, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. So Haman comes in the kingdom, and Mordecai, although everybody else bows down, Mordecai refuses, and Haman is enraged. Enraged so much to the point that he says, I'm not going to just kill him. I'm going to kill all of his people. Everybody. Now, when you read the story, the question I think we should ask is, why is, Morde- why is Haman so enraged at Mordecai's unwillingness to bow down that he's willing to kill an entire group of people in his kingdom? And I think the answer is, Haman's actions reveal something about Haman's heart. See, Haman's very identity, his value and worth, was based on prominence. It was based on power, right? The, what, what gives you a sense of worth and value? What is your identity? For Haman, it was power. It was position. It was prestige, right? And anybody, any Rocky fans in here? No? Okay, is that movie getting too old now? Nobody knows it. Come on, guys. We've got to get into the classics. And remember in the first Rocky, right, where Sylvester Stallone is... As every Rocky movie, he's basically getting beat within an inch of his life and then somehow comes back and wins. Um, he, his fiance comes out and says, why are you doing this? Like, why are you killing yourself? And he says this line, he says, I have to prove that I'm not a bum. And I think that's actually the condition of the human heart. See, deep within every human heart is this need to prove we're not a bum. We have to find something to, to give us a sense of identity, a sense of worth and value. We look for things all over. So for Haman, his worth and value came from his position, his power, his prominence. And so when he walks in and Mordecai threatens that by not bowing down, Haman is so enraged that he's got to defend the thing that gives him worth and value that he's willing to kill him and all his people. But what's interesting is I actually think the heart of Haman is the heart of humanity. I remember when I realized this in my own life. um, My wife and I have been married for a few years, and I decided like every good husband one day, uh, she was out, and I was going to clean the house for her. Now, w- w- ladies, I don't know if you know this about uh, men. We have ability, I think it's a supernatural gift, that we're able to clean a room what looks like it took us two hours in like 
five minutes before you arrive back home. Men, you know what I'm talking about. This is, a, this is a spiritual gift that God has given us. And so I decide I'm going to exercise that gift. And I'm going I'm to surprise my wife. I'm going to clean up. I'm going to do dishes. I'm going to really make it nice. And all the while I'm doing this, I'm anticipating her coming home and what her reaction is going to be. Right? Like, I'm like, man, she's going to walk in the door. She's going to be like, oh, babe, you are such an amazing husband. Like, wow, you're handsome. You're smart. And you clean. I really, I really am blessed to have you in my life. I'm thinking about all the compliments she's going to give me. Maybe she'll take a picture and post on her social media, tell everybody else how great I am, right? Like, I'm really building this up in my mind, and I'm like, man, she is lucky. She's a lucky lady. <laughs> and then my wife walks in the door, and I'm, I'm kind of sitting there, like, waiting for her to notice, right? She walks in the door, and she doesn't say a word. And she's telling me, she's talking about her day. I'm like, uh-huh, yep, yeah, totally, babe. I'm just waiting for it, right? I'm like, are you kidding me? In my mind, I'm like, are you serious? You don't see the floor vacuumed? And I'm like, well, surely she'll go into the kitchen. She'll notice that there's no dirty dishes in the sink. Then she'll say something. She walks into the kitchen, not a word. I'm like, what is happening around here? What is going on, right? And so I find myself starting to get more and more angry, more and more frustrated. And we kind of get into like a little, I snap at her. We get into a little like verbal fight. And she's got to leave. She's got to go to another appointment. So she walks out of the house. And, and, I'm, and I remember thinking to myself, why am I so angry at her, right? You ever been angry at somebody? You really don't know why? Why am I so angry? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart. He said, you didn't clean the house for her. You cleaned it for you. You're so desperate for her approval that you cleaned the home hoping that she would come home and tell you how great you are. And when she didn't give you the approval and the affirmation that your heart so desperately wants, you were angry at her. See, I didn't clean it for her. I cleaned it for me. My heart was so desperate to find worth and value, identity in the approval and the, the affection and, 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 and the people around me, and particularly my wife, that I did things that looked like they were for her, but in reality, they were for me. The human heart is a heart that is constantly desperate to find identity, worth and value in things, just like Haman. You and I have the heart of Haman. And maybe, maybe you're like Haman where you look to positions of power and authority. Maybe in your mind it's like, hey, if I could just get that job, then I would have worth and value. Or if I could just be the head usher at church or just play in the worship team. Or, or, or maybe you're like me where you look to approval, the approval of people around you. If people just liked me, they just thought I was funny or smart or athletic if my coworkers just liked me, if my boss, if my wife just liked me. <laughs> maybe, maybe for you, you look for security. If my bank account was just a little bit bigger, then I'd feel safe, right? If, as long as I'm in control, as long as I know what everything's going to happen, then I'll feel safe, then I'll feel comfortable. Or maybe you look to things like comfort. As long as I can fill my life with, with toys and fun things and TV or whatever it is. See, all of us, the human heart, we're all looking for something that will give us a sense of worth and value, a sense of identity. And you know what the problem with that is? We spend our entire lives chasing it, and it's never enough. The entire direction and focus and mission of our lives is no longer about the mission of God. It's about mission of fulfilling our own hearts with something that will never sustain. You and I have the heart of Haman. And so Haman comes in and he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill all his people. i got to defend what gives me a sense of worth and value. And so he goes on. And, and meanwhile, Esther is the queen. And, and Esther has chosen not to tell anybody that she's a Jew. Her, her uncle Mordecai told her not to tell anybody. And so Esther finds out. So Haman goes to the king, right? And he says, all right, here's what I want, to, what I want you to do. 
uh, I've got these people in your kingdom. They're, they're kind of rebellious. They're not living the way you want. I'll take care of it if you let me. And so the king signs an edict. And, and kind of not knowing what he was doing, he signed an edict that said, on a certain day, anybody who wants to kill the Jews is allowed to, and they cannot defend themselves. And so he, he writes this, he sends it out into all the land, and the Jews hear about it, and there's, there's mourning all over. They're, they're very upset. Mordecai finds out, and he, he sends word to Esther, and he says, hey, this is what's happening. You've got to know. And so, so Esther decides that she is going to risk everything that she has. She's going to give up. Now, now keep in mind, this is, a, this is a girl who was an orphan, who, who didn't have much, and is now the queen of the land. She has power, prestige, money. She has everything a person could want, and she decides she's going to risk it for her people. And so she decides to go before the king, and in that time, unless you were invited, you could not just go before the king, and you risk being killed. If he was in a bad mood or had a bad day, you could be killed for that, but she decides she's going to go before the king and advocate for her people. So she does, and, and he extends his scepter. He gives her grace, and he says, what do you want? So she says, I want you to come to a banquet I want to hold, you and Haman. So the king says, of course. They come to her banquet, and he says, what do you want? Anything you want. She's like, I want you to come to a second banquet that I'm going to hold. Right? Seems weird, but when you look at the story, what you realize is God is providentially aligning in our life. He's always working. He's always orchestrating for his mission. And so they come to the second banquet. At that banquet, Esther says to him, I want for you to protect me and to protect my people. And the king is enraged. He says, who would dare attack you and your people? And she turns and she says, this man, Haman. And so, of course, the king is so mad, he's so frustrated that he decides to kill Haman. And, in fact, he hangs Haman on the very gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai. You can see this major reversal of situations. And then he gives all of Haman's land, all of Haman's property to Mordecai. And we come to this moment in the story, which I think is a pretty pivotal moment. In fact, it's a, it's a massive moment in the story. And I want to read to you. In, uh, in chapter 8, it says this. The same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman. See, in this moment, Esther had seemingly got everything that her heart desired. She had power. She had, she had privilege. She had uh, money. She had respect. And now her uncle Mordecai had now been freed from the persecution of Haman. And now he had been given all of Haman's stuff. He had been put into a, power of, a, a place of power and authority and position as well. And how easy, as I read the story, I saw how easy it would have been for her in this moment to go, wow, thank you, God. Me and my family are good now. Right? We're taken care of. My uncle's good. I'm good. Everything's great. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not risk anything else. God is taking care of us. We're in a good place. That's enough. And, and it would have been so tempting for her to do that in that moment. What was interesting and reveals to us something about the heart of Esther is that in this moment, Esther realizes that there's a mission of God that is bigger than her own circumstance or her own choice. And she decides that she's going to risk everything that she had in that moment. And once again, go before the king and plead on behalf of her people. 
She's going to risk it all. Everything that normal, everyday life, all the other people around her would say gives you worth and value, gives you identity. Esther is willing to risk it for the mission of God. And she goes before the king and once again pleads on behalf of her people. And the king says, well, I can't reverse the edict, but what I will do is I'll give another edict that allows all the Jews in the, in the land to defend themselves when they're attacked. And so the story ends by God giving all the Jews this divine, miraculous victory over all of those who are trying to persecute them. And as I read this story and I thought about this idea of the heart of Esther, it was profound to me that in this story is someone who is willing to risk everything that would give you identity for the sake of the mission of God. And this is really profound because the nation of Israel was not just God's people because he loved them more than others. They were God's people because they had a mission. It was as they lived in community with each other and as they lived differently than the rest of the cultures around them that the world would see who God really was. That was, that was their purpose and their mission. And so God had a plan for them, and he called Esther. He used Esther to be a part of his mission to rescue and redeem the Jews so that the world could see who the real God was. Now, when we, when we look at this story, it's very easy to go, well, how do I do this? How do I have the heart of Esther? Right? How do I have a heart that says, my life is not about me and my comforts and, and my family and my stuff, but it's about his mission. How do we do that? Because it's so easy, especially in the middle of coronavirus and all that's happening, to go, I'm going to take care of me and my own. How do we have a heart that is ready to engage the mission of God? Well, the truth is that when you study this story, Esther is not the hero of the story. In fact, that's true of all the Old Testament stories. See, Esther's not the hero. Esther is intended to point us to the true hero. And when we look at this story and we fast forward, what we see, the true hero of the story is Jesus. That the person in the work of Jesus tells us something about how we engage the mission of God. See, in Jesus, we have a God who who left his very identity and was born into humanity, born into persecution, right? Born into, born into poverty and came and lived this perfect life on you and I behalf. Every day living out his identity, sacrificing what he was owed and what he deserved and living a perfect, blameless, sin-free life. And then on the cross, Jesus does something miraculous. Jesus looks out at you and I, people that are filled with the heart of Haman, a heart that is all about us, and he decides instead of pouring out his wrath, on us, instead of pouring out punishment that we deserve for constantly looking to things other than him, he decides to take on our heart of Haman onto himself and impart onto us the heart of Jesus. He imparts onto us an identity that we could not earn by ourselves and that we do not be, need to be afraid of losing. Jesus gives us what we could never earn, never achieve, an identity that lasts for eternity. And in that moment, he does something amazing. He also gives us a mission. A mission to rescue and redeem his people. A mission to bring heaven to earth in the way that we live for each other. And friends, here's what I want to encourage you. The power of the gospel is this. Because Jesus has given you and secured for you an identity for the first times in our life, we can be free to say, my life is not about me. 
I don't have to work for people's approval. I don't have to work for positions of power, authority. I don't have to work for money because I have my identity in Jesus. So now my life can be about them. My life can be about fighting for my community, the people around me, my neighbors, my friends, my family. My life can be about making disciples. Jesus gave up his identity so you could have one. Jesus lived out a mission so that you could have one. The hero of the story is him. I'm going to invite someone this morning. We're going to, we're going to play uh, something in the background. I want to encourage you guys this morning. Here's what I, here's what I believe that God uh, wants to speak to our hearts for this church. Now, I didn't know this morning that this is small group Sunday before I came. But what's amazing is I really believe that God is calling his people to step up and rise up into a place of mission like never before. God has given you identity so that you can have a mission. And so what I want to do for a moment, if you, if you would oblige me, would you, would you just close your eyes? I'm going to pray for you guys in a second. But here's what, I, here's what I, I think God wants to speak to some of our hearts. That some of us in this room this morning, God is saying to you, hey, there's things in your heart that you've been looking to to find identity, to find worth and value that are not me. And this morning, God wants you to identify what those things are. What's the thing in your life that you look to? Would you be willing to lay that down? Because he's better. He's more beautiful. And there's others of, us, others of us in this room that I think Jesus is saying, I've called you to a greater level of mission. That you've been living your life more for yourself and for your family. That you've lost sight. That your heart has not been about my mission. You've not been willing to sacrifice and lay down whatever it takes. You've not been willing to, to, to say, God, this area of my life is yours. It's all yours. There's nothing that's off limits. I think there's some people in this room this morning that the Holy Spirit wants to tap on your shoulder and say it's time for you to engage the mission of Jesus like never before. We've been called to live in community as his people and transform the world that we live in through the message and hope of Jesus by making disciples. And what's beautiful about your church and your leadership and your pastor is that you have a plan. You've got a next step, and it's called small groups. So this morning, as I heard him sharing his heart with small groups, here's what I just feel like God is saying is, some of you, would you be willing to take the next step? Would you be willing to lay down the comforts of your life, the convenience of your life? Would you be willing to sacrifice the things that maybe you hold dear and precious because the mission of God is that important? Your community is that important. Your neighbors are that important. You are that important. The people in this church are that important that we need to be willing to fight for each other, fight for the gospel. And as we live out our Jesus identity, as we live out the heart of Jesus, our mission is to help others discover their heart of Jesus. Would you be willing to do that today? And if the answer is yes, and if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, then, man, I want to encourage you, would you guys get involved in small groups? Let's overwhelm your leadership and your pastor with so many people that want to do small groups and lead small groups that he's got to go hire a couple more people to administrate the whole thing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you give us an identity and that you've granted us a mission. You've invited us to be a part of your plan. Help us to live that. Help us to fight for what matters to you. Help us to make disciples and be willing to lay anything and everything down for your mission. That's our heart. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen, amen. Come on, somebody give the Lord a hand. Thank you, Pastor Jared. Let's honor Pastor Jared one more time. Who's grateful for the kindness of God in this place? I'm grateful for the kindness of God, that he doesn't look at me and my sins, that he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, if you're in-house this morning, if you don't mind staying for one extra announcement, uh, we're going to dismiss our online audience in a minute. Small groups are live this week. Okay. So if a small group leader grabs you, they're going to hustle you, they're going to come after you right now. So get ready to dodge if you're not trying to get in a small group. But let yourself be chased by the love of God this morning. Uh, They're going to be in the courtyard uh, outside today. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Good, all right. Well, you're more alive than the first service, so I'm not going to say you're my favorites, but I said it. <laughs> hey, I'm so glad to be with you guys. What an honor. I love your pastor. I don't know if you guys know this, but you've got a pretty phenomenal pastor. And this was, yes, okay, there you go. This was evidenced when I, uh, I knew I was going to be here with you, and I told a few people around the network uh, the church I was going to be at, and they're like, oh, yeah, Pastor Josh, man, I love him. He's an awesome dude. So it's, he has a reputation of being an amazing guy, an awesome guy, and I love his vision and heart for ministry and for your church. And so it's, it is a really an honor and a blessing to be with you guys this morning. And um, uh, before I jump into the Word, I do have to, uh, I do want to share a little story with you. How many of you guys know that um, oftentimes our heart will direct our life, our choices, the things that we decide to do? Right? Um, I recently had a moment of uh, real weakness in this area. It was a low moment in my life. I want to share it with you. Um, my heart often directs my life in such a way. And one of, my, one of the things that does that in my life is the area of snacking. Anybody else? Snackers in here? Okay, a few of you are willing to admit it. Somebody, one of you actually raised your hand for the other spouse. That's awesome. I love that. Yes. You're like, come on, let's be real. You're a snacker. Um, I, I love snacking, in particular, late night snacking when everybody else is in bed, no one's there to judge you. That's the best. Um, and, and, and so I, I love going down to the pantry. You open that up, and it's like a heavenly, almost a worship moment. I don't know if you guys hear angels singing like I do. Maybe that's just in my house. But there's something, there's something amazing. And I love, I love late night cereal. Anybody else a cereal snacker, right? It's, it's almost the taboo of eating breakfast late at night. I don't know what it is, but cereal late at night is awesome. And so, so for me, my favorite cereal is like uh, the Cocoa Pebbles. My brother up here, he knows. And, uh, or if, if we're trying to be healthy, we do the Fruity Pebbles, right? Because we know, you know it's fruit, so it's a little bit better for you. But um, the other night, I go to have a late night bowl of cereal, and I open up, and my wife has, she's purchased Frosted Flakes. So I'm like, all right, that's all right, we'll settle for Frosted Flakes. I go, I get them out, I pour the bowl, I make the cardinal mistake of pouring the bowl of cereal before I check and make sure there's milk. We've all made this mistake, right? Um, and so I go in the fridge, I'm like, oh no, there's no milk, like, God, why am I being persecuted like this? This isn't right. And, uh, and just as I'm kind of you know, engulfed in self-pity, I look back and I see a bottle of chocolate milk, which is typically reserved for my, my children who are six and eight, unless I decide I want to sneak a little bit and then it's for me too. But I look back and I'm thinking to myself like, do I dare? 
do I dare do this? I mean, I've never, I've never gone down this road before in my snacking. Um, and I started to think, I was like, what are, what are people going to think of me? What's New Covenant going to think of me when I share this story with them? Are they going to judge me? Like, I can't do this. You can't do this, Jared. You cannot pour chocolate milk on your cereal. You're a grown man, right? I'm having this internal struggle. And at the end of the day, I was like, but just do it. I think it'll work. And so I grabbed that chocolate milk, man. I poured that chocolate milk on those Frosted Flakes. And I kind of, I went upstairs to eat it, filled with shame and regret, but also hope. I didn't know what it was going to taste like. And, and so I, I, I had it. I enjoyed it. I didn't know if it was the worst moment, the lowest moment in my life, or one of the most genius moments of my life. You guys will have to try, try it out yourself, and you can let me know. But it was, it was one of those funny reminders that oftentimes in life, our heart, um, our heart directs our, our path, directs our mission, directs the things that we do. And I, and I think that's an important concept to think about. Because, in fact, this morning, like the story we're going to look at in the Bible, and, and really so much of the Scripture oftentimes warns us that we can think we're walking in the plan and the mission of God. We can think the directedness of our lives is where it needs to be, when in reality, our heart is leading us in a different direction. It's possible that this morning, you and I are in this place, and we're thinking, I'm doing the right things, I'm moving in the right direction, I've got, I've got everything where it needs to go, God, I know what you want. But in reality, his mission for our life is different than where our heart is directing us. And so this morning, I want to share with you the idea of what does it take to have a heart that's ready for the mission of God? What does it look like to have a heart that's ready for the mission of God? So if you're with me, turn to your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're going to look at Esther chapter 3. Esther's a long story, so I'm going to tell a lot of it to you. But I do want to start by reading Esther chapter 3. Starting at verse 5, here's what it says. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay, honor, pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Let's pray real quick. Father, we love you. We thank you. We know that you are a good God who's uh, not only got a plan and a, a rescued and redeemed our own hearts, you've got a mission for our lives. And I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us, that we would align our hearts with your mission, that we would not chase and pursue things that you do not desire for us. So speak to us as we're open to hear from you. That's our prayer this morning. Everybody said, amen, amen. So the book of Esther is, uh, is a great story, and if you've never heard it before, it starts off and we learn about the Jews who are kind of, they are refugees. They've been dispersed from their land. They're spread out over this kingdom which is ruled by a man named Xerxes. He's a king. And, and the story starts off by him parading his wealth and he invites everybody basically to a big party and he's showing off and, and, and he wants his wife to come in so he can parade her in front of everybody. And she refuses to do so. And so King Xerxes decides, that's it, I'm going to start over. I need a new wife. And so he starts off with the, the plan uh, to set out to find all the most beautiful young women in the kingdom, and he's going to pick for himself which one he wants to be his wife. And this is a multi-year plan. He was very serious about this endeavor. And so uh, what we learn about during this time is there's two other characters we're introduced to. One is named Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew living in this land as a refugee, and Mordecai has adopted his niece, whose name is Esther. Esther's, both her parents were, have been killed, and so Mordecai adopts her, and they're living in this land, and Esther is said to be incredibly beautiful, 
and she gets chosen as one of the potential candidates to be queen. Right? And so, so, uh, so during this time, Esther goes in, and it's, it's a long process, but she ends up being chosen to be the queen over all the land. At the same time, a man named Haman is rising in the ranks and ends up becoming the number two guy in the kingdom under King Xerxes. So you've now got Esther, who is a Jew, but Mordecai has told her, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew, is now queen. And Haman has risen to the number two ranks. And the Bible says that he, he was so uh, honored that every time he would come into the kingdom, everybody would bow down, almost in worship, to Haman. And so as we come to this story, which the, the portion that we just read, chapter 3, verse 5, we start to learn some things about this character Haman, and in particular the heart of Haman. And the Bible says that when Haman saw that Mordecai, remember Esther's uncle, would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people. So this morning I want to look at the heart of Haman, and then we're going to look at the heart of Esther. And what does it tell us about our own hearts and what it takes to have the heart pursuing the mission of God? And so as we read this little this passage, we learn something about the heart of Haman. And here's what I think we learn. Haman was desperate to find worth and value. Another way to think about that is Haman was desperate to find identity. And his identity was found in power. It was found in prominence, right? He wanted people as he came in to worship him. He wanted to be considered great. He wanted to be powerful. And so imagine as he's walking in, everybody else is bowing down and worshiping him, but one person, Mordecai, refuses. And it makes Haman so angry and enraged that he's willing not just to kill that man, but to kill an entire race of people. Can you imagine? Why? Because Haman's very identity, his very sense of worth and value was found in his power and his position. And Mordecai was the one person who represented a threat to that. Now I read that story and you're like, this is crazy. What would lead somebody to do such a crazy thing? But the reality is, one of the things that we learn, I think, about the heart of Haman is, this is not only the heart of Haman, it's the heart of humanity. That all around us, all of us, all, all of human history are people that hearts are desperate to find identity in certain things other than Jesus. We all do. We look for identity in, in what people think about us. We look for it in money and power and position. We look for it in comforts. All around us, we look for things that will provide us some sense of worth and value. I remember when I realized this to be really true in my own life. Um, I've been married for a few years, and I decided, like any great husband, I was going to clean the house for my wife. Very selfless act. It's like, babe, I love you. I'm going to do this for you. She was away and coming home. And so I was like, you know, like any great man, about five minutes before she arrived, I set off in a frenzy, and I started cleaning as much as I could so it would look like it took me two hours. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. It's a spiritual gift we have. Um, and so I, I cleaned the house, and all the, all the while I'm cleaning, I'm doing dishes, I'm thinking to myself about what her reaction's going to be like when she comes in the door. She's going to walk in and be like, oh my goodness, what, what an amazing husband you are. Wow, you're so, oh, you're, you're the best husband in the world. I think and maybe she'll take some pictures and post on her social media, tell other people how awesome I am, right? Like this is, this is going to be such a great moment. I'm thinking about all the things she's going to say and things she, how happy she's going to be. And, and my wife walks in the room, she walks in the house, and she does not say a word. Not a word. Doesn't notice the floor being vacuumed. Doesn't notice the stuff being picked up. 
And I'm thinking to myself, she's talking to me. I'm like, I can't believe she's not noticing this. Like, this is, she doesn't see the pillow. I arrange the pillows in an aesthetically pleasing way. I can't believe this. This is wrong. And then so I'm like, all right, well, surely she'll go into the kitchen. She'll notice the dishes, right? She goes and she doesn't say a word. And I find myself getting angrier and angrier, right? And so I start kind of like, we're in this conversation. I kind of snap at her and, and we get in a little tip. And anyway, she ends up leaving. She has to go back to work. And, and, I, and I remember thinking to myself, why am I so angry, right? Like, have you ever had that moment you're angry at someone and you don't really know why? I had that, and, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart. And he said, you didn't clean the house for her. You cleaned it for you. You were so desperate for her approval that you thought by cleaning the house, you would get her to come and tell you how great you are, and it would fill your heart with what you needed, which was the approval of her. And when she didn't give it to me, Then I became angry at her because she was now the thing getting in the way of me getting what my heart most wanted. I had this deep idolatry issue. I was desperate for identity. And for me, I found my identity in the approval of the people around me. And so I would do things oftentimes that would seem selfless, right? They would seem like they're for everybody else when in reality they were for me. I was desperately looking for something that would give me a sense of worth and value. And this, this was a revelation for me. I realized, actually, it was kind of depressing because I realized all the ways of my life that I did this. I realized how many sermons I got up and preached and thought, man, I hope everyone thinks I'm great. I hope, I hope they think I'm funny or whatever. How many times in life I, I have conversations like, I wonder what that person thinks about me, right? I realized so much of my life was about me trying to get a sense of identity from the people around me. My mission was about securing an identity. That's the heart of Haman. And the truth is, you and I are exactly like him. That we look to things. And maybe, maybe for you, it is approval. Maybe you're like me. And you want people around you to like you. You want your pastor to think you're great. Or your coworkers, your teacher, your husband or wife. Maybe for you, it's security, right? It's, I just need a, a higher number in that, that bank account to make me feel safer and more secure. Maybe for you, you're like Haman. And it's power. It's position. It's authority. See, the truth is we all look to something that we think will give us a sense of worth and value and identity. And if we're not careful, the whole mission of our life, the whole direction of our life will be about pursuing those things which never last. They always run out. We always need more and more. We become slaves to the mission of getting an identity. It's the heart of Haman. And so Haman goes on, he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai. Not just him, I'm going to kill all of his people. And he goes to the king and he says, hey, you've got these people in your land that are really bad. They're not following your ways. If you sign this, I'll take care of it. I'll, 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 don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. Right? So the king signs it and he ends up signing an edict that says on a certain day, all the Jews of the land are, can be killed by whoever wants to kill them and they can't defend themselves. And so he signs it, and, and, um, and this goes out, and the Jews start to hear about this, and they start to mourn, and, and Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you need to do something about this. And so Esther has this choice, right? She, she can go before the king, but at that time, you weren't allowed to just go before the king unless you were invited. You risked being killed. You risked death. And so she could risk losing her life, all that she had now. She had wealth. She had prominence. She had power. She had all these things, right? She could risk losing all of that on behalf of her people. Or she could say nothing and do nothing and be fine, but knowing that all of her people were to perish. 
And so Mordecai says, you've got to do something. So Esther, she decides she is. So she goes to the king and she says, hey, I've got these, these couple of banquets I want to throw. Would you come? And, and so finally the king and Haman are there and he says, what do you want? And at the second banquet, she says to him, I want, I want to make sure that my people and myself are not killed, are not destroyed. And the king, not realizing that she was Jewish, of course, says, what do you mean? Who would dare do this to you? And she says, that man, and points to Haman. And so the king, the king decides, he says, Haman is going to be killed, and he actually hangs Haman on the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. So it's this great reversal in the story, right, where God has now redeemed and rescued Mordecai and Esther. And, and we go on and, and, and we read in, in chapter... Uh, in chapter 8, this is what it says in verse 1. It says, That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So in this moment, right, this huge reversal has happened, where Esther's now gone from being an orphan to being the queen over this land. She has all this wealth, and now her uncle, Mordecai, has gone from being potentially killed by Haman to now he has all Haman's stuff, and he reigns over all of Haman's, uh, all of Haman's possessions, and he's basically taken the position that Haman had. It's this great reversal of situations. And I think to myself when I read this story, how, how easy and tempting would it have been in this moment for Esther to say, wow, we're good. Like, my family's good, right? We're set up. We're, I'm not going to rock the boat. I went to the king one time, but man, I'm not going to go back a second time. How tempting it would have been, and how honestly, how often for, for, for you and I, we think that way about our lives. We become very consumed with what's happening to us and our family and internally, and we forget that there's a bigger picture, there's a bigger mission out there. And so, Esther, though, makes a decision. I think this reveals a lot about the heart of Esther. In verse 3, it says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, which means she once again went back, risked everything to plead on behalf of her people. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So Esther chooses to go back to the king, risk losing everything. Think about this. She risks everything that Haman thought would give him worth and value to fight for the mission of God of rescuing and redeeming the nation of Israel and the Jews. She traded in what Haman fought so hard for. She was willing to risk all of that stuff. Why? Because Esther understood there was a mission of God that he had put her in that place and at that time to be a part of and to engage in. And as I think about the idea of the heart of Esther, what I realize is we're the same way. You know why the, you know why the, the Jews were so important to God? It's not because he loved them more than other people. He actually revealed his heart for Israel and for why the Jews mattered. It was because he was going to use them as a people to reveal to the world who God really was. He cared about all the world. He wanted, remember, remember he said to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Through you will be a blessing to the whole earth. The, the nation of Israel, the Jews were meant to live in community together and that the way that they lived uniquely and differently from the cultures around them was to show the world who God really was. And so Esther goes to the king and the story ends 
by the king saying, okay, and I, I can't reverse the edict that's already out there, but what I will do is I'll write a new one that says the Jews can defend themselves. And so what we read is in the story, on that particular day, God gives this divine, uh, this divine victory to the Jews over their enemies who were trying to destroy them. And it was a supernatural victory, a divine victory to where the world could see, wow, that wasn't them. God was involved in this. It was this God using Esther to rescue the people of Israel so that the world could see who God really was. And when we think about that, that's true of you and I, that we've been granted an identity in Christ, but we've also, in that identity, have been given a mission. And the mission is to love and live, to, to, to live in community with each other, to love each other and live in such a way that the world can see who Jesus is. That's the heart of Esther. That's what she understood. And, and, and for some time in my life, I, I read stories like this and I think, okay, how do I do that? Because I've got a heart of Haman. So often, I don't feel like I've got this heart of Esther. And so the question becomes, how do I do it? And I'm going to invite, we can have someone come up and play something as we come to a close here. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and thinking, how do I do this? How do I live a selfless life where I'm willing to risk and give up everything for the mission of God? And the, and the answer is this. Esther is not the hero of the story. We're not called to be like Esther. Esther actually points us to the true hero. And in fact, that's true of all Old Testament, Old Testament narratives. You remember on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is walking his disciples, and what does he say to them? He says, all of, all of the Old Testament scriptures point to me. I'm the fulfillment. See, Esther points us to the true and better Esther, to the true hero, and that's Jesus. Because when we look to Jesus, we're reminded of the gospel. The gospel which tells us that Jesus sacrificed his identity. Right? He's the creator of the universe. He gives that up to be born into human flesh, born into poverty, born into persecution, born into ridicule. He lives this perfect life, selflessly living not for himself, constantly denying what is owed him and what he deserves, but he lives for you and I on our behalf. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross, he takes the heart of Haman, which you and I all have. He looks on this world, he looks on us and sees people who constantly look to things outside of him for identity and value and worth. All people who have a heart of Haman. Jesus takes that heart of Haman onto himself. The punishment we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, he takes it on himself and imparts onto us the identity of Christ. An identity that we cannot earn, which means it's an identity that we don't need to be afraid of losing when we make a mistake and we fall short. We didn't earn it. It's an identity that lasts for all of eternity. It's an identity that secures us for the first time. So when you think about what gives me worth and value, it's not based on how you perform or the things you do. It's based on the work and person of Jesus Christ. It is complete. Right now, when the Father looks at you and I, He sees His Son, Jesus And the reason why that matters is for the first time in our life, Jesus has secured an identity that now allows us to live a mission that isn't about ourselves. It's not about looking to find things that will give us a sense of worth and value. We already have it. I don't need the approval of my wife to give me worth and value. I already have the approval of the creator of the universe. I don't need money to give me a sense of worth and value. I have the approval of the creator of the universe who made everything, owns everything, and is in charge of everything. Right? We don't need power to give us some sense of worth and value. 
because the one who had all power gave it up on our behalf. For the first time in our life, we can say, I have what I need. Now I can live to pursue your mission, God. And his mission is to make disciples all around us in this church, in this community, in your jobs, in your families, are people who need Jesus. They need the heart of Jesus in their life. And when you have your identity secured, your mission becomes to help other people discover their Jesus identity. That's what discipleship is all about. It's saying it's not about me, it's not about my comforts, it's not about what I want. It's your mission, God. Now here's what I think amazing is, I didn't know you guys were doing small group Sunday today, but I really believe that your pastor, your church, their leadership understands the heart of making disciples. And I wonder today if that God is calling some of us in this room to say, would you step out and engage my mission like maybe you never have before? Would you be willing to be part of a small group? Would you find people that you can fight for, that you can love on, that you can sacrifice your own comfort, your own time, maybe your own money, to say your mission is more important than all that stuff? None of that matters, God, if I'm not engaged in your mission. So would you guys do, would you do something with me this morning? If you're comfortable, would you close your eyes for a moment? I'd love to pray with you, but I really think the Holy Spirit wants to speak to some of you. So as your, as your eyes are closed, um, first, first thing I want to say is this. That there's some of you this morning, I think God wants to say, there's things in your life that you've been looking to, to find your sense of identity that are not me. Maybe you're like Haman, maybe you're like me. Maybe it's approval or money or power. But there's some things in your life that you've looked to to find a sense of identity, a sense of worth and value that are not me. And this morning, God's just saying to you, would you lay that down? That's a counterfeit version. It will never sustain you. It will never last. You have Jesus. You don't need those things. What are the things you're looking to this morning? I think the Holy Spirit wants to reveal that to you. But the other thing I think he wants to say to some of us this morning is, would you be willing to engage my mission in a way you never have before? Would you be willing to sacrifice? Would you be willing to say, God, nothing's off limits? Would you be willing to, to sign up and be a part of a small group? Would you be willing to open your home to people? Would you be willing to open your life to people? Would you be willing to open your pocketbook to people? Would you be willing to love people in a way that you maybe haven't yet? God is calling his church to engage his mission. And if you think to yourself, I can't do it, I don't know how to do it, look to the cross, look to Jesus, and see that he, he fulfilled his mission to grant you an identity and to give you a mission. This morning we can do it because he's done it for us. So Father, we pray for every person in this room. We pray, God, that you would help us understand who you've called us to be, who you've made us to be. We thank you that you have, you have taken away the heart of Haman that we all have, and you've given us the heart of Jesus. Thank you that the gospel has set us free from the things that we look to and chase. And I pray that every day we would continue to lay those things down. But God, I also thank you that you've given us a mission, that you've invited us to be a part of your plan. And I pray for all of us in this room that you would help us see that, that you would help us be passionate about that, that you would give us a love for people who are broken and hurting all around us. Show us the next steps, God. And we pray for what you're doing in this church and what you're doing through small groups, that we would see transformation happen. Help us to engage in your mission like never before. That's our prayer. That's our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Good job, bro. Let's put our hands together for the Lord. Thank you, Pastor.